Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round, we're doing Jurassic Park 3, which will definitely not go in the direction you're expecting. Dinosaurs lived 65 million years ago. What is left of them is fossilized in the rocks, and it is in the rock that real scientists make real discoveries. Now, what John Hammond and InGen did at Jurassic Park is create genetically engineered theme park monsters, nothing more and nothing less. Because this is going to end up taking us into the world of the Industrial Revolution 2.0. Yeah, and it's got absolutely nothing to do with genetics. So, what I'm going to talk to you about this time round is we're going to start off with the dinosaurs, but we're going to end up in a very different place indeed. The other thing I wanted to say is that this is all being linked and inspired to a company that I I don't work for, I don't earn anything from them for, but they are just good guys and I absolutely want to do a big shout out to them, so you will get this later on. But first of all, Jurassic Park 3. Now, the Jurassic Park series as a whole is a really interesting one. I've done a whole episode on the original Jurassic Park. It is a five-star, stone-cold, family-adventure classic. Greg loves it too, and we did a podcast that talked about dinosaurs together. So, that was Jurassic Park. But then, a few years later, Jurassic Park 2 comes out. Now, the interesting thing about Steven Spielberg is, while he is one of the most successful directors of all time, and indeed, I'm going to just put it out there, I think he is the greatest director of all time. How can I say that? Well, think about the movies Saving Private Ryan, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and E.T. Though... Those aren't even in the second half of his career. He's continued to make amazing movies, but those are very, very different films. You would not expect the person to do Jurassic Park to also do Schindler's List, but as I said before, he was literally making those films at the same time. Saving Private Ryan is an incredibly serious look at World War II and the combat involved in it, and then you've got very cartoonish Nazis in Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is also one of the greatest family adventure movies of all time and then you've got E.T. which he thought would be his little small movie a meditation really on how a family deals with the loss of a parent in this case a divorce there is no father in Elliot's family and yet it becomes the biggest grossing movie of all time because it's got an alien in it we so it's just great great stuff and while he does make the hits, the interesting thing is, is he doesn't really do the sequels. The one notable exception to that had been the Indiana Jones movies, where he made three of them in the 1980s. Yes, there was a fourth one many years later, indeed, after Jurassic Park 3. But when he made Jurassic Park, there was a big question mark about, look, again, Jaws had been, when it came out first time, broke all box office records and it became the biggest grossing movie of all time. Then it was superseded by other movies, most notably Star Wars, but then E.T., another Spielberg movie, 
does it. And then we get to Jurassic Park and it does it again. So he's got the number one box office movie three times in a row in three different decades, the 70s, the 80s and the 90s. Now, James Cameron, he's also got two biggest grossing movies of all time. But he hasn't had the third one yet, and while, don't get me wrong, Avatar 2, The Way of Water, made a ton of money. It was one of the very few movies that grossed over $2 billion. It didn't outstrip the original Avatar. So, we're not here to talk about box office, we are here to talk about Steven Spielberg. So when, inevitably, when Jurassic Park was such a big hit, there must have been a huge amount of pressure on, look, let's get the band back together again. Let's get some of the people from the original movie, the original actors. But then, like most notably, Jeff Goldblum came back for the second movie. But Sam Neill and Laura Dern did not come back for the second movie. You do also get Richard Attenborough. He's also there in the second film. There are links for the actual characters to take it forward. But who's going to direct it? Well, I mean, there's only one person to direct that kind of family adventure. It's got to be Spielberg. Now, I don't know how much money he was offered for it, but clearly the thing about Spielberg by the late 1990s, he wasn't missing out on any of the cash. If he was trying to make money, he'd already done that. So you tend to see him as he goes through the 1990s. He's doing stuff that basically works for him. Things that he, projects that he, stories that he finds interesting. And clearly he thought that there was enough ideas rolling around his head for him to do a Jurassic Park 2. Now, most people say Jurassic Park 2 isn't as good as the original Jurassic Park. And I would agree with that. But they also point out that there are a couple of really great set pieces in it. Perhaps the most noticeable one is the bit in the truck that's dangling over the cliff and they're lying on glass and you can hear the glass cracking. Oh, that's so tense. And then the other bit when the velociraptors are attacking in the long grass. Spielberg understands it's much scarier about what you can imagine than what you can actually see. And at the end of the movie, gives everybody what they want. You've got a dinosaur T-Rex tromping around in an actual city and he drinks out of a swimming pool and things like that. Yes, all of that's happening in Jurassic Park 2. And that was a big hit. It wasn't as big a hit as Jurassic Park, but it still cleaned up at the box office. So who's going to do number three? But by then, by the year 2000, Spielberg clearly has moved on to other things and is doing other things. And not his bag. Thank you very much. Indeed, the next time he would be doing something that was just pure entertainment and family adventure, we get Ready Player One, which is in the 20 teens. So it's about 15 years after all of this happening. But in the meantime, he's making great films like Bridge of Spies and others. Don't want to get too distracted with the career of Spielberg. I don't know, maybe I'll do one about just Steven Spielberg at some point. Huge, huge fan. I digress. Point is, he's busy, not interested, we need somebody else to do it. But if we are going to get another director, definitely we're going to have to try and get a good director. The other thing is, of course, Spielberg's expensive, and if the returns are starting to go down, maybe we need to go to somebody who's good and competent, but also cheaper, basically. <laughs> but it needs to have that Jurassic Park connection. So they managed to get Sam Neill and Laura Dern back 
Both of them are playing their characters from the original movie. You've got Jeff Goldblum reprising his role in number two, and then you get the other two reprising the roles in number three. And then we get to the Jurassic Worlds, and that's many years later, soft reboot, yada, 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 but still generating billions of dollars, those three later movies, the Jurassic World movies. And again, they bring back the original trio because, of course they do. It, it adds a little bit of gravitas or that connectivity to the original IP, intellectual property right. So, with this one, we've got an interesting idea that, as always, things go horribly wrong on an island. But this time round, everybody knows that there's dinosaurs on the island, but a family goes onto the island and then they lose contact with them, which forces the father, who's estranged, played brilliantly by William H. Macy. They get some great character actors. Like I said, Sam Neill, Laura Dern, they're great, but William H. Macy always adds something good to whatever film he's in. But also, Michael Jeter's there as well. If you don't know him, just a great character actor. And so, everybody is good in the film. And the idea of going there, trying to find the family, is something a bit different. Rather than escaping from, they're going in. And also, this time round, there's the Spinosaurus, which is even bigger than a T-Rex. And of course, you have to have a fight between a T-Rex and a Spinosaurus, and it swallows their satellite phone, and occasionally the phone rings. So you can tell how far away the Spinosaurus is. This is all really good stuff. Finally, we also get pterodactyls. We get pterodactyl scene. But the problem most people have with Jurassic Park 3, it's a solid film. It's not a bad film by any stretch of the imagination. It did well at the box office. It got solid reviews. But the problem is the velociraptors. Because you get the great line in the first movie, clever girl. But they've gone from clever to quite frankly, being lecturers at universities. These are some insanely smart creatures that have no right to be this smart, and it's just a bit silly. Indeed, the first sign of trouble is while they're going to the island, and Sam Neill is asleep, and he has a bit of a nightmare, which involves, famously, don't forget his character's name is Alan Grant, and famously, or infamously, there is a velociraptor suddenly appearing on the airplane, turning to him and saying, Alan. This has been much mocked online, and it's, it's just too much. It's gone too far. Sorry about that. And so the velociraptors, the expectations of their intelligence is so high, it's just problematic. It, it kind of breaks the movie. However... One of the critical things, and this is where I'm going with this episode, is they get a 3D printer. Now, this movie came out in 2001. 3D printing technology had been around for a few years, but certainly it was not in the consciousness of the average theatre-goer. So to see this idea of layer upon layer of resin being sculpted into, in this case, a velociraptor's throat and vocal cords, I'm not making this up, so that they were able to blow air through it and make the noise of a velociraptor. And that's not either how 3D printing works, nor paleontology, nor science in general, but okay. And then they're sort of communicating with the velociraptor. You can see why this is the bad bit of the film, yeah? Because even if you can make the sound of a velociraptor, that does not mean that you... It, well, it's like I have the same vocal cords as somebody from China, but it does not mean I know Mandarin, so... 
that wouldn't work as a form of communication apart from you just sound like me but i don't understand you regardless it was a thing and that 3d printing in the movie it was actually using special effects but we'd seen little hints of this in things like fifth element and actually the first time of actual 3d printing was in a 1998 movie called toy soldiers which if you think of Gremlins or indeed Jurassic Park, it's one of these slightly scary movies which is aimed at families, but it's a family adventure. In this case, it's action figures that have computer chips in them that get a bit too smart and then start attacking people. So very similar to something like Gremlins. But at the beginning of Toy Soldiers is you see them being built with 3D printing technology, although people didn't really realize that at that time. But again, Fifth Element, you start seeing the actual Chosen One Fifth Element, Mia Jovovich, being built using not really 3D printing technology, but 3D surgery technology. And this is obviously in the far future. So we're starting to get this idea of being able to build things up, leaking out into pop culture, into the general population. But a lot of people didn't realize it's a real thing. And so, while yes, I started with Jurassic Park, or Jurassic Park 3, this is where I'm going to actually move into how fascinating 3D printing is and how I'm going to ask you to look into a company called Dark Fantastic Mills. Yeah, what a name. Based in Scotland, Dark Fantastic Mills is a company that I just stumbled across online. And, and this is the joy of the modern world. Not only do we get technology like a 3D printer, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about basically how magical they are, but I'm also going to talk about how magical they are. No, really, it's hard to describe it in any other way. Using another bit of pop culture, you get something like Star Trek Next Generation and the idea that you can just ask for a cup of coffee or Earl Grey tea hot. Tea Earl Grey hot. And it just appears. Now, that kind of fabricator isn't a thing that we can produce nowadays. But 3D printing is pretty spectacular, which is why that technology is being described as the Industrial Revolution 2.0. So, I'm actually going to start with Industrial Revolution 1.0, because what is an Industrial Revolution? For starters, it isn't really a revolution. There wasn't a huge amount of disruption. It was gradual change. If you talk about the French Revolution, American Revolution, Russian Revolutions, a lot of bloodshed, and a lot of very rapid change. But really, the biggest question, which nobody can actually answer, there's no doubt that Britain started the Industrial Revolution, but why? You've got mass Britain in the late 1700s, early 1800s did have a massive empire, but France had a pretty big one as well. The Ottoman Empire was still very large at that time. You've got China, which had had this administration for a thousand years or more, and a huge amount of well-structured society. Why didn't they have it? The question is... Why did it end up happening in Britain more than anywhere else? After all, Britain itself may have run an empire, but it wasn't a very big country or particularly populous country in and of itself. And the answer seems to be a mixture of a whole bunch of serendipity. And starting things off, 
Britain was very scientifically minded, as opposed to something like Imperial China or the Ottoman Empire that was very backwards looking. They were looking to preserve the status quo. So when people came up with new ideas, it was, I'm not saying that they were banned, but it was very hard to get anybody to pay attention. The basic argument of, but we've always done it that way, is how both the Ottoman Empire and Chinese Empire worked. Same sort of thing with France, and it is worth comparing just before the French Revolution. Britain by then had a working, in inverted commas, democracy, but the idea of the, the trader, the merchant, there was a lot of free market enterprise going on in Britain. In France, everything had to go through the royal court, so everything bogged down in administration and other unfun bits of history like that. So, Britain just happened to have the right society to allow new ideas to grow at a time when it needed to produce more stuff, sorry to get technical here, because of the growing empire and in particular the growing royal navy which was needed to glue this empire together and also it just happened to have very close to the surface a combustible fuel coal. So this is why geology was not invented, that's perhaps a strong word, but some of the first geologists that started to put scientific rigour into exploring the world of geography and geology were British. So I find it interesting that we, we talk about massive prehistoric ages in the fossil records and in terms of different layers of sedimentation and stone. We talk about the Precambrian and, and things like that. Almost all of these layers and eras are named after ancient British tribes, pre-Roman tribes. So the Cambrians were actually on Britain before the Romans turned up, and yet it is being used today in terms of modern geological exploration. So that's just a little quirk going on there. So we just happen to have all the right elements together to lead to a need to make more things for various different reasons. They could be for the military, they could be for the vastly growing population, and also because science was allowing us to start utilising and harnessing things like steam power in a practical way. I'm well aware that the actual first steam engine was invented in the ancient world, but it was a novelty device. It wasn't used to power anything, really. It's also worth pointing out that about this same time, 1776, the Americans get very excited about that Declaration of Independence. Good for you guys. Meanwhile, in Britain, we have a Scottish guy called Adam Smith who writes a book called On the Wealth of Nations, which is the foundation of the modern concept of economics. So you actually get something that can be taught at university being invented in just one book. Well done, Mr. Smith. But on that, it starts understanding concepts such as the idea of economy of scale. So if I am making something, if I get everybody used to making that same thing, we can make it quicker, which means we can make more of them, which means that each individual unit I am selling becomes cheaper to make, more cost-effective. The idea behind all of this is once we have these manufactorums being set up, there was no great plan. This was not what... Queen Victoria dictated to her minions. This just started happening. But once we start creating more, I'm going to be technical here again, more stuff, more quickly, 
Well, we now need to move it more effectively, which is where we get the canals being set up in Britain, and then the rail networks, and then the road networks. And you now get this massive increase in terms of efficiency of travel, and in terms of speed of travel as well. And this is now meaning you get to the point where it becomes in the late 1800s cheaper to import cotton turn it into cloth and then export it again back to somewhere like Egypt than the local Egyptians actually making it there in the country. And so this gives you the idea of the economy of scale. And once you're at that competitive edge, well, everything from Britain is being produced at the same or better quality than handmade. Nowadays, we tend to think of handmade as really good. But if you're handmaking something relatively basic, like knives, for example, there's only so badly made or well-made knife you can make, but you've got the consistency of the steel coming from somewhere like Sheffield, and therefore Sheffield steel becomes a world-famous concept, and Sheffield keeps making the steel cutlery and knives and other things. So therefore, you've got this build-up of, I'm going to say it, a head of steam, sorry, pun intended, and... Once this catches on in Britain, it starts catching on in other countries, but Britain's definitely the first place to do it. It is also worth pointing out, it takes a lot of money to set up a manufactorium. Let's call them factories from now on. And then you have to pay people. But of course, where are these people coming from? And the answer is, these are poor people. Where do poor people work prior to the Industrial Revolution? In the fields. So industrialization in inverted commas, can also be associated with urbanization, you get these small little towns like Birmingham and Manchester that really weren't major locations in the Middle Ages, for example, but because they're at the right location, they have right access to ports and things like that, or coal, etc., they become huge hubs for manufacturing, and over one generation, these populations explode. In the space of 25 years, they go from being 10,000 to 50,000 population, and then they just keep growing and growing and growing. So with all of that going on, that's a lot of canals you've got to build. That's a lot of roads and rail links you're going to have to create, etc., etc. This is all taking up a lot of time, energy, money, etc. And so with that in mind, today in the modern world, there's obviously, and quite rightly, a conversation about Yes, I want cheap shirts, but I don't want them so cheap that I'm destroying the environment in the process. And it's fascinating looking at the carbon footprint of pretty much anything. Even if something is organically grown, well, how did it get to you? Because it is then chucked in the back of a lorry, which is using diesel to get it from the organic farm to the organic shop. Well, Everything truly is organic, but there is a carbon implication at that point. Gem, let's use an electric car. Yes, but not all of the UK's electricity is created by renewables. There are still fossil fuel burning power stations, which means there is an impact on your carbon footprint. The really fascinating one is, I like to go on holiday. Good for you. But as soon as you get on an airplane, you have a terrible carbon footprint at that point. Flight is very bad for the environment, but at the same time, I do like going to other countries, particularly for my day job. 
if somebody says, I'm going to pay you, you have to do your work in Malaysia, which is literally something I've had this year, I'm not going to turn around and say, yeah, but I'm only going to do it if you offset the carbon footprint, because I don't want to have that conversation with a client. I don't want them to say no to me working for them. I am a freelancer. So it's complicated, it's safe to say, but dear listener, there are options out there, which is where we come to the Industrial Revolution 2.0. The amazing thing about 3D printing that I have witnessed in a number of different organizations, some of these I've actually done the day job with, but obviously I'm also going to talk about dark fantastic mills as well, is you now are able with a 3D printer, which works in essence, the same way as a printer printer, like I need to print out some sheets of paper with some words on them. Yeah, absolutely. You're doing the same thing, only in three dimensions. And just like you have to load your regular Canon printer with ink, you have to load your regular 3D printer with whatever it needs to print things out. And I'll come on to a really amazing technical one, which I've seen working live, which I've always been confused about until I saw the machine. So glad I was witness to that. Most of them are some kind of resin or plastic. So the idea is, if I've got a big machine and one little bit of it's broken, I then phone up the manufacturer and go, ah, the bit's broken. And then they have to make a bit. They then have to get me the bit. And something like that could take several weeks. And it could be quite expensive. And again, bad for the environment. Or I could 3D scan the bit. And then I could get a 3D printer to print out a copy of it. Now, obviously, if this is something under high pressure, high tension, I can't just use plastic. But on many occasions, a simple plastic widget can be made within an hour, which costs far less to the environment. I mean, there is a tiny cost the environment. I mentioned plastic there, for example, and the machine will be running on electricity. But a 3D printer can get something out that is perfectly serviceable to be put into a machine, and then, great, my machine is now working again. However, I did say it doesn't work in all instances. So I have heard of titanium 3D printing, and I've always said, well, I understand how the resin and plastic ones work. They heat up the plastic and they put it down one layer at a time. But you can't heat up titanium like that and let it gloop out because it would break the machine. It would melt through the machine. Titanium needs very high temperatures to be liquid. So I was at this company that was very proud of both its 3D surveying, its imaging systems, but also the way that they were able to produce titanium 3D prints. And they gave examples of things like superbike, motorbikes needing certain components while they are touring. And it might be quite hard to get certain pieces of kit. But if everything has been stored on an STL file, I believe that's the term. So in other words, once you've done a 3D scan of something, that's just data. That can be held on a disk, on a pen drive or something. So all you need to do is upload the right program into the 3D printer. The 3D printer doesn't need to see the original thing. It just needs to be told where to lay down the plastic, titanium, resin, what have you. And then, and in the case of this, you are able to have a piece that's made out of titanium that works just as well as the legit off-the-shelf one from the manufacturer and something going through incredible pressures, a high-performance motorbike doing a race against other motorbikes and it doesn't break. It works fine. Now, 
Going back to how they do that with titanium, which I can now tell you, is everything I just said is absolutely accurate. They can't use molten titanium. It's way too expensive to heat up and would then just melt everything around it. But what do they do? They very cleverly, the, the machine is different to your average 3D printer. It lays out a layer of titanium filings, like iron filings, and then a very powerful laser points exactly at where the iron filings are. So just on that one point, it gets hot enough to melt titanium. Also, the fact that they are titanium filings means that they are able to reduce the overall melting point, and then it moves on to the next bit and does the same process over and over again. So really, it's creating a solid thing out of powder which is even more magical, in my opinion, anyway. I'm, if you're not excited about this, then I am. Indeed, 3D printing is now being used by scientists on the space programs, because if there's a bit that's missing, and I'm on the International Space Station, or a bit's broken, it is much easier to 3D print this stuff than anything else. So, when we eventually go to Mars, which I believe will be in the next 10 to 15 years, who knows, it could be all kinds of delays and it doesn't happen for another hundred. But the point is, at some point, when human beings do go to Mars, they will need a whole load of STL files and a bunch of 3D printers. But at that point, they're safe. If a key valve in their water system breaks, great news, we can fix it on Mars. We don't have to call back to Earth to get somebody to ship one over to us which will take three years. You can see from all of this, this is an amazing revolutionary form where I talked about the overall cost, the economic cost of like mass production. Well, sometimes I just want one and 3D printing is able to do this. Now, what has all of this got to do with Dark Fantastic Mills? And I'm now going to go into, please write this down, Jägerholm. That's J-A-G-E-R-H-O-L-M. Jägerholm is their new thing, and I'm super excited about it. So I first found out about Dark Fantastic Mills, like I said, years ago. It was on Twitter, and I noticed they were doing 3D print terrain. Now, on various other episodes, I've mentioned Warhammer, and I love... Probably my favourite thing in the whole of the hobby of Warhammer is dry brushing. What does that mean? That means you get some paint onto a brush, quite a wide brush, and you then wipe off most of it so it's relatively dry. So there's very little paint on it. And then you just drag it over the figure. It works better the larger the thing is. So vehicles or terrain, like dark, fantastic mills terrain. And if you just drag it over, let's say the base, the, the main thing, I painted the whole vehicle in a dark olive green. And then I've got a dry brush ready for a very, very light green. And I then drag it over the vehicle. And because there's not much paint on the brush, it only picks up the very highest parts of the vehicle. So in other words, it picks out the highlights. It shows you the bits that would be hit by sunlight. And therefore, when you've got something, a vehicle that's meant to be the scale of a tank in your hand and you just paint it one colour, it just looks very flat. You need to use a few painting tricks to make it look more 
three-dimensional, more realistic, even though it's a scale model, and dry brushing is the way to do it. And dry brushing gets you great results very quickly, which is why I love doing it. And just sitting there with a tank, and I, it's looking a bit awful, and then I added a layer of dry brush, it's not a lot of effort for an awful lot of return. And whereas absolutely I've done that on actual miniatures, little figures, it works even better on big things like tanks or terrain. So I have dry brushed meters, square meters of Dark Fantastic Mills products, and they just work really, really well. Now, with a few other organizations with their 3D prints, because their quality of print isn't as good, as I said, these things are built up on layers. So you get these little ridges on some of the poorer copies of uh, of terrain or, or models or whatever not copies but products the, the actual produced end result so when i'm dry brushing it picks up it exaggerates the different layers i don't really get that with dark fantastic mills i'm not saying it's absolutely 100 percent perfect there are times when you can if you really know what you're looking at it's like oh yeah there's a there's a couple of lines there that are actually a sign of where it was printed but they are very few and far between and they do a great job of what it looks like in the picture is what is actually sent to you. But as I said earlier, there's the STL drives. So 3D printing in and of itself, I would argue, is a hobby in and of itself. It's a little bit like airbrushing as well. I get a lot of people, a lot of YouTube videos going, ah, oh, the easiest thing to do is airbrush. You can cover things so much quicker and you can use any color as your base color. True. But you also then have to buy an airbrush, which is a lot more expensive than just a paintbrush, and you have to clean it, and it's got a little compressor, and this is all getting rather complicated for just putting some paint on a thing. So I don't use an airbrush. And it's the same thing with 3D printing. People say, oh, it's so much easier to 3D print, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, but you need to buy one, and a good 3D printer is going to cost hundreds if not a couple of thousand pounds so first of all that's the investment secondly i have no idea what i'm doing i'm not an engineer and whereas they are far more user-friendly than they were 10 years ago again i'm not sure i've got the time or inclination and where do i put it and you also have to keep these things very clean because you can imagine these layers have to be precise if you start getting dirt in the way all kinds of problems start building up so not really for me but talking to the guys at Dark Fantastic Mills, if you go onto their website, if you just do a Google search, you'll get there. Or indeed, if you want to look at Dark underscore Fantastic on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, I believe it's the same on Instagram, then you can see some of their work. Gotta say, the guys there, I don't want to name names in case I named the, the wrong guy, but there's some very talented painters there. And what you see is what you get. Now, obviously, you have to paint it yourself. It comes in a various colors, and it is kind of weird. Sometimes I've had some really big prints, and clearly they needed to change the resin halfway through. So half the bits are in gray plastic, but then the other half are in purple plastic. But it makes no difference when you start putting down your own paints on it, so off you go. It also allows them, because these large prints are hollow, it allows them to do some really big pieces of terrain. I've got this gladiatorial arena this huge circle with spikes sticking out of it and steps up to it and gateways into it it's an amazing piece of terrain and it didn't cost the earth if this was made out of actual hard plastic injection molded plastic and games workshop was doing it it would be 500 quid it was less than 100 pounds for me but it's big 
It's easy to paint. I love their stuff. However, they did a chaos, a kind of corrupted citadel thing, and it was their first Kickstarter. And it was where you put some money into the Kickstarter and they were able to produce more and more of these STLs. So it wasn't just if you subscribe to the Kickstarter, you get the basic castle. The more you give us, the more STLs we can produce. So then you can have like tentacles coming out of castle walls and things like that. So they were able to spend more time on it and you got more and more out of it. And it worked very well for them. And I turned around to them and said, look, I'm just not a 3D printing guy. It's a real shame. Look great. I would have loved to have been part of it, but it's just not my thing. And they explained to me the problem with these very large terrain pieces is it takes a while to print them out for starters. And then secondly, they don't have to post them, which again costs maybe 20 pounds on top of the overall. I mean, they're not heavy, but they are large boxes. And so they have to be shipped out, etc., etc. So again, the great thing about 3D printing is if they just send you the file, you then just download the file, put it into the 3D printer, bang, done. Don't need to worry about the postal service. But unfortunately, that's not the way I work. So where's this all going? They have just started their new Kickstarter called Jägerhold. And the idea here is this, and I was aware of this about a year ago, because they did a little test print, they said, what does everybody think about this? And I thought, oh, that looks great. And it's actually a village, a kind of Nordic village, loosely inspired, I'm going to say, by How to Train Your Dragon, because whereas the outsides are your average wooden hut, on the top of the roofs, they're not covered in thatch, and they're not covered in slate tiles, instead they're covered in dragon skin. And along the top of the very highest part of the hut, there's the spine of the dragon with all the horns sticking out of it. But there's also a nice wooden chimney, not wooden, stone chimney coming out of it as well. It is a thing of beauty. If you want to have a look, then then check out, go to Dot Fantastic Mills and have a look at their examples. If you want to go onto my Twitter account, you'll see I've been hashtagging Jaegerholm. They were nice enough to send me one of these homes and actually what they've done now is the idea is it's on a cliff face so they've actually created the cliff pieces so you can create an entire terrain piece along with a village also you can make the the houses and huts taller or shorter so you can actually create a 3d environment to have your games it's absolutely amazing stuff really creative bravo guys well well done unfortunately i won't be able to do all the whole stl stuff because i don't have my own 3d printer but they were nice enough to send me one of the huts and i'm saying the word hut but it's a properly sized piece and just putting it onto a playing board that and a couple of other pieces of their scenery like a couple of boulders and a couple of trees and you've actually got a lovely little village scene that you could fight something like age of sigma or the skyrim figure game or whatever there are loads of games out there that where you have an opportunity to use this kind of stuff oh absolutely could be used for dungeons and dragons as well but this is an example of manufacturing in the uk you don't have to go other ways around the world it's also not a large company I think there are two people in it. It might just be one and then a mate helping out. So apologies if suddenly you've turned into a 400-person company, Dark Fantastic Mills. I'm pretty sure you're not there yet. But they are good guys, good customer service, really good prints, really affordable prices. 
and very easy to paint as well. So for all of these reasons, I would thoroughly recommend you check out Dark Fantastic Mills. I absolutely, and check out for the hashtag of Jägerholm, which is, again, J-A-G-E-R-H-O-L-M. It's out there. I've done some tweets on it as well. Do absolutely, if 3D printing's your thing, absolutely get involved in them. If 3D printing isn't your thing, but you do do any of those sorts of games I've just mentioned, definitely go onto the Dark Fantastic Mills website because there's some really good stuff that you could have there which will add flavor, character, something a bit different to whatever you're playing, whatever game system you're playing. They also do sci-fi stuff as well, just for the Warhammer 40,000 fans as well, and a massive sand crawler type thing, which is huge on the game table. Again, just give them all the love, everybody. That's it from me, and as always, another episode coming soon. <laughs>